Welcome to the Story Discovery Podcast. I'm your co-host, J.W. McAteer. Coming up, you'll hear a new story from our free online publication, Etched Onyx. Please join me and co-host, Melissa Collings, after the reading, when we talk with the author about their work and all things writing and otherwise. The Story Discovery Podcast is sponsored by Scrivener, the go-to app for writers of all kinds, used every day by best-selling novelists, screenwriters, nonfiction writers, and more. Think of Scrivener as the Swiss Army knife of writing apps. You can use just the parts you need, like the distraction-free writing view, or you can break out all the tools to plan, organize, research, and create your work. When you're done, you can easily export to multiple document, manuscript, and ebook formats. Our listeners get a 20% discount by using the coupon code Story Discovery at checkout. You can learn more at their website, literatureandlatte.com, or just type Scrivener into your search engine. Give Scrivener a try, you won't regret it. This podcast and all related materials are a production of Onyx Publications. All stories are copyright 2021, all rights reserved. Today's feature is a selection of poems written by Kate Banks and narrated by Melissa Collings. Settle in and enjoy. A Selection of Poems by Kate Banks Still I wake to find the world dangerously still, flattened against a cottony sky. Lavender spears slouched against the stone wall. Japanese lanterns plumped up, holding their breath. A gecko neatly pressed into a crease of the windowsill, all unmoved by my stares. I swear the world has come to a halt. The wind chimes hang numbly from the crooked arm of an olive tree, a sure sign of gravity and the gravity of the moment. I turn my ear to catch the scolding chant of the brown thrasher. Tisk, tisk, tisk. The brisk shrug of the gull's wings before it takes flight. But my senses alight on the dull throb of emptiness, and I place my hand on a chapped bough of the orange tree, searching for a pulse. I dare not take the rake and score the earth or attempt to trim the frayed hem of the time. So I go about my day, grinding coffee beans, pressing them into the sieve of the mocha. I split two rumpled cardamom pods and empty their seeds into my cup of brew. And I go to the window. I sip my coffee, and as it slips down the back of my throat, the stillness is ripped open by a black dart. A crow touches down, planting its nubby claws into a drugget of tasseled grass. I spy a fiddlehead pushing through the soil, and the world rejoices. The fronds of the palm tree billow upwards. The shiver of the wind chimes becomes a tinkle. The lavender straightens its spine. And I put down my coffee cup 
and accept the invitation to pick up my rake. The Noble Fig Tree There is no denying the fig tree. When I lean into the curve of its arched spine, and it turns a large-eared leaf towards me, I wonder if you can love a tree as much or more than a person. I insist on being present when the fig tree gives birth to its first fruits, silk-skinned teardrops that blossom again and again into a rich violet hue. I catch my breath when they tumble to the ground in the noble art of letting go. I didn't taste a fig until I was a grown woman, coming as I did from the land of snow-crusted orchards, crisp apples and mealy pears. I will never forget my first bite, moist and seedy, a forbidden fruit if there ever was one. It spoke to me of faraway places, lips parted, talking in tongues. As fall draws to a close, battening down its hatches. I gather the last of the figs in the bosom of my apron. I station myself at the stove, and I stir their pulp into a sugary paste. From the corner of my eye, I watch the last of the fig leaves writhe and twitch, an emotion I know is a prelude to yet another death. A little death, if there is such a thing. I can the compote and set it on the pantry shelf, and I remind myself that it won't be long before the wood sorrel sprouts. On the hill, and the fig tree's sparse winter skeleton shudders, stretching its spindly fingers upward, rising on its haunches to new life. I must remember to tell my children to make my final bed under the noble fig tree where I know its gentle breath will ease me into my own little death. The Fallow Fields Doesn't the moodiness of late summer remind you of a tired child, all played out but wanting one more go? I would give in if I could, a few more days of mirth and merrymaking, granting the daisies a second bloom, borrowing from the moon to give to the sun. What difference would it make? But it's not up to me. So I will accept the meddling shadows, dimming the light, the parched grass, that's lost its springy step. Tuckered out, it lays down for a long nap. Soon the fields will lie fallow, and I will walk them, back and forth, keeping step with their weakening heartbeat, priming my patience, honing my trust, for the long wait. All winter I will tend the fields, meticulously minding the maze, cultivating emptiness, storing it in my bowls. Farewell to my summer friends the crickets and ants, the ladybugs, the birds. 
Each crisp night signals another departure. Goodbyes are blistering. The leaves flinch before turning their backs to me, but I am not offended. I eye the burnished bulbs, buried in a vase, and a scrap of my spirit hunkers down with them. I smile to think of the flurry when winter turns over and finds spring in its bed. There's bound to be a few days of seduction when energy rises and passions rule but winter will retreat. The currents of spring will find their way back to me, and there will be a quickening in my fallow fields, and I will fill my bowls of nothing. Spring Cleaning I skim the winter scraps from the supple surface of the puddle pond, Parched casements and the ribbed skeletons of tree pods edge the ragged garden beds. Prune the fruit trees, all skin and bones. I hose down the shed, reluctantly wiping the cat's paw prints from the panes of freckled glass. Then I head to the house, flinging open the windows, airing the bedding, taking special care with the pillows where the heads of my dear ones have lain, doing my best to extract the essence of love from the feathers and fuzzballs. Yesterday seems ages ago. I empty the drawers, anointing them with lavender and rosewood oil, rearranging their contents, and stating a new world order. The mateless socks say it all. I pause to picture them wandering the earth, looking for the perfect partner. The perfect partner. What an idea. I floss the chair slats, coax the dust bunnies from the corners, and pin them in my dustpan. Among the dregs are a die, a button, and a coin. I think I'll string them on a charm bracelet. The raging voice of reason cautions me. Nonetheless, I take a perilous turn inwards to tend to my temple. I tiptoe through the debris and remnants of a life not fully lived, keeping bits I should have thrown, tossing those I should have kept. But who's to know when there's no peephole to the future? No wonder one clings to the stains on the tablecloth or the tear in a sheet. It takes courage to walk away in search of the missing socks. A butterfly alights on the window pane, its patchy wings all in a frenzy. I stare at it rudely for far too long. But when it finally takes flight, I am able to move on. Stone soup. Imagine streets lined with orange trees. The first time I saw them, I thought I was tripping. White buds bursting into a star shower, flurrying like snow. It took me back to the time I rolled a joint in the woods, at the crack of dawn, in a pickup truck. My own words crinkled in my ears and the pine forest became a citrus grove, 
dripping with fruit. I promised myself never to smoke pot or eat an orange again. But wouldn't you know it, I bought a house in the south of France with an orange tree right off the kitchen. It was magnificent, a grand master of trees, one hundred years old. I found myself clinging to its roots, beguiled by its beauty, aching to belong. When I moved in, I blessed my home, misting Tulsi, tossing salt in every corner, chimes and Buddha bowls in every room, and I scribbled a blessing on parchment paper and planted it beneath the orange tree. I threw myself into gardening, digging deep into the earth, soiling my half-moons, each time depositing a grain of me next to a seed or sapling, taking a stone in return and placing it on a shelf. Many moons later, when dusk was busy sweeping away the crumbs of day, I headed to the garden to reap my rewards. White, bodiced, peached-faced turnips, carrots alongside their ghostly neighbors, parsnips, beet greens and chives. I chopped them and tossed them into a boiling pot of broth. Then I took a stone from the shelf and dropped it into the stock, hoping that it would nourish my bones. And I, too, would take root in this foreign soil. You've just listened to a selection of poems by Kate Banks. Welcome to the post story portion of the podcast. I'm your co-host, Melissa, here with JW. Hello. We've got Kate on the show today to discuss these elegant and impactful poems, and also to get to know the mind behind the work. Welcome, Kate. Thank you very much, Melissa, and hello to you, JW. Hello. I'm delighted to be here. Well, we are very excited to have you on the show today. You are a true celebrity. In addition to being a poet, Kate is a picture book and YA novelist and has had multiple books published for children. In fact, her books are on my shelf and I read them to my children. She's also a fascinating person and I can't wait to find out more. So who is Kate Banks? Well, okay. Yeah, so let me get started. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us everything. <laughs> I think the first, the first thing I, I, I end up saying, I actually live in France. I've lived in Europe for the last uh, 30, 30-something years, going on 35 years. Wow. So the, the first thing I'm going to say is I'm an American, because even though I've lived here for more than half my life, mm-hmm. I grew up in, on the East Coast. I was born in Maine. Uh, in and around Rockport, Camden area, the coast, and uh, spent uh, my childhood, had a wonderful childhood, um, romping among the pine trees, uh, the Atlantic, all of that uh, was a a big part of my growing up. I was a big reader. Big surprise. (laughs) Born with a love of books and Born also, I think, with a good dose of wanderlust because somewhere in my teens, I got the travel bug and I started to travel um, numerous trips to Europe, 
travel. These were, I, I'd like to call those looking back my outward journey because the second part of my life up until now sort of started me on an inner journey. But my outward journey, I, I grew up in Maine at the time was a fairly isolated state. Uh, I felt like we didn't get a lot of contact with the outside world Interesting. Um, outside yes. of Maine. I think my we would go to Boston quite frequently because my father was there for work and Red Sox games. And I don't want to leave that out because that's a very important thing to know very about important. me. I'm a big Red, Red Sox fan. Uh, so I, I went to Wellesley College. I, I mastered in this. This is interesting, given the context of this conversation. I uh, majored in history. But when I went to Wellesley, I had considered majoring in creative writing and literature, you know, having a passion for writing and books. Mm -hmm. And my first course was actually with a poet. And I'm not going to tell you her name because that would be unkind, actually. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> and uh, I remember this class. She invited us to, to write a poem or various pieces of something and when she when she got around to giving the feedback to the class she started off by saying all of your poems are terrible oh I'm, my goodness i really don't think we have a writer in this room oh my goodness <laughs> wow and, that's and abrupt i i struggled through the semester and um said to myself I'm never going to take another creative writing course again because oh, I won't become a writer uh, if this goes on. I mean, she was so harsh with everyone. But mm -hmm. very often, of course, now I look back and I smile to myself. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. You have reason so to do anyway, so. Anyway, I, I, I swapped my major to history. I, I hadn't declared it yet, but I went on to major in history and economics. And... Um, then I got my, I moved to New York. Uh, my last year of uh, university at Wellesley, I got an internship at the Atlantic Monthly Press in the children's book department. Because by that time, I had pretty much decided that's what I would like to do, uh, mm -hmm. write children's books. And I, I'd always loved children's books, picture books. Um, I collected them when I was younger. Um, read them all the time. It would be the hmm. first place I go in a, to, to a bookstore, to the children's book section. And um, I really wanted to work in a publishing house in a children's book department. So I had a wonderful internship with Melanie Krupa, who's very well-known editor of children's books at the Atlantic Monthly. And when I graduated, I wanted to find a job in Boston, but Lo and behold, there were no jobs in publishing in Boston. Hmm. So very reluctantly, I went to the Big Apple, went to New York, not really wanting to live there, but okay. Meanwhile, I'd applied to graduate school and I was accepted at Columbia. So I started a master's program in history while working uh, just by some fluke. Uh, and I won't go into the story because I don't want to take up a lot of time, but it, it fell in my lap, a job with Frances Foster, who is at the time, and I think she she uh, died several years ago, but mm. I think she's one of the great editors in children's books. Oh. And I worked for her for many years, and I actually 
uh, she was my editor for more than 20 years. She published my first book, which Aww. I wrote while I was working there. So I think probably that was just meant to be. Those doors just opened. And once I got on that path, uh, there was no turning back. Oh, and from from there, when I, when I did leave, there was some romance involved when I met my husband, actually. I met oh. him at Columbia. Mm. He was in he was at business school in Colombia, and he he is Italian. Uh, he'd grown up between Milan and Rome, and actually, I went to Rome on a holiday sometime in that period when he'd already graduated and gone back, and we hooked up again. And um, did you go because of him? I did not go because of him. I accepted a job. Um, I had a job at the National Geographic. I was leaving, I'd started to publish books. And so I actually left because I didn't think it was a great idea to be publishing where you were working um, mm. for a number of reasons. Publishing your yeah. own books, you mean, yes? Well, actually, at the time, I was working for Alfred Knopf mm. under wow. the Random House uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. umbrella. And there was a policy not to publish in-house employees. Mm -hmm. And okay, that makes sense. Francis actually really wanted the book. So <laughs> <laughs> they broke with the ranks and published it. But after I just felt, well, probably best if I, you know, move yeah, on. And, and I was planning also to be moving to Europe. So I had a year job at the National Geographic editing a history anthology they were doing. It was actually an atlas of American history. And my I was a major I majored in American history and had my masters by that time. So wow. I was working on editing that book and uh, knowing that after that year I'd be moving to Rome hmm. and wow. getting married. So <laughs> that's sweet. Yeah. So uh, that's what brought me to Europe. Great. Definitively. Definitively. Yeah. I love that story and those travels. Yeah, you've got quite the varied background. It's wonderful. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I wanted to ask about the poetry aspect, because uh, normally one of the things we do is, is talk about the poetry or the stories that folks have just listened to. And, you know, you do have this background in picture books and YA. Um, so how does poetry fit into your writing life? And is this something new or have you been doing it for a long time since that professor kind of turned you off of it. So. <laughs> yeah, turned me off of it. Well, actually, you know, I wrote a lot of poetry when I was young. And, I, you know, I think a lot of writers just kind of do that. I, I liked poetry. My, my father uh, gave me a book of William Blake and liked his poems. And I think back then, it was it was probably a gothic phase in high school when everyone was reading at my high school, Edgar Allan Poe, anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so uh, so we got, and, and I was editor of the school newspaper, and I would write some poetry for it, I remember. Okay, I don't think it was anything, probably uh, anything very good looking back, but I used <laughs> to spend a lot of time writing poetry, but I never thought, okay, this is something I'm going to do. Hmm. But I did enjoy doing it, and I think the reality is, over the years in my picture books, very often my texts have been referred to as poetry. Mm -hmm. So, Aww. and I think this is, you know, I think it's probably clearly something that was in me and um, I used it in another context. But I think the common denominator is I, I've always loved words 
I feel like I look at them probably in a way that maybe other people don't. You know, I really turn them around. I pay attention to their sound, to how they fit together. Uh, for me, it's like, you know, when I start writing something, it's like uh, doing a jigsaw puzzle in a way, finding the words that fit with one another and then the larger pieces and building on those. Never being too wordy. Mm -hmm. So I like... Uh, I like sparse text in a way. Mm -hmm. So um, I think it's fair to say I've kind of been doing poetry all along, but mostly in my other writing. Mm -hmm. Yes. Sure. Well, I, I think picture books kind of have a rhythm of their mm -hmm. own, particularly. And so, yeah, in a way, that is poetry. I agree 100%. Yeah. I agree, too. Yeah, so I think that's the best way to, to, to sort of answer the question. And I, I think to speak honestly as well, when I was writing and maybe thinking of writing novels or writing other kinds of things, uh, which I do think about and I have, you know, and do have other things on sure. the back burner, um, you know, poetry wasn't considered a market that was easy to get into or you know, everybody yeah. would, the feedback was nobody reads poetry. Oh. So, so when I was, you know, writing my picture books, I mean, everyone and doing my, my novels, people did seem to be reading those. So I really was happy doing that. And actually the big shift came for me during the confinement in France last year. Mm -hmm. uh, because I, we were, I, I know you as well in the States there. I mean, I think most of the world was confined for long lengthy yes. period of time but we at the very beginning passed six months and we were not allowed to go more than uh, 500 meters from which would be about a half a mile from our homes right and we were we were allowed out once a day only so it was very confining as obviously it was intended to be but i did the confinement in my house in france where i have a beautiful landscape a beautiful garden and it's oh. A lot of it is wild, but the fig tree is actually up in back of my house. It's part of my garden. So many mm -hmm. of the things I talk about uh, in those those poems, they're actually features of my home. I love that. I was going to ask where you got the inspiration, because this is a selection from a larger collection of, yeah. of poetry that you have. And so that that's amazing. That was in, You were inspired by just being out in your own garden. I was inspired by being, I would say, even at my house. And there's an interesting sort of backstory to that. I'll again go into that just ever so briefly. Um, I live in a very old house. It's about, well, it's 200 years old, actually, oh, in wow. Montan, wow. which is on the coast right next to Italy. And um, when I moved into this house, I, you know, my husband, and I just fell in love with it. It needed yeah. a lot of work. We did the work. But when we bought the house, once we were ready to move in, apart from the fig tree, there was a there is still an enormous orange tree in the garden mm. off the kitchen. Oh. And that is it's one of the biggest orange trees in Montan. And it gives wow. about six thousand oranges every year. My wow. goodness. Between three. So it's prolific. But when we when we bought the house, I did. I wrote a blessing, a piece of poetry. Mm. It was a blessing and we actually read it together and buried it under the tree. Oh, that before. is so sweet. I know, it's I wonderful. I love that. Before we went into the house, and I think my 
husband, my, my sons at the time were about eight and 13, and one of them was tossing salt in the corners, and my husband was praying to Tulsi, and the other one had the Buddha, the Buddha bowl, and we were sort of, you know, going through the house and clearing it before we moved in. And wow. actually, a, about 10 years ago, the, the New York Times and the Herald Tribune, which is the Herald Tribune is, I think, don't even think it's in existence anymore. It's just the New York Times. Um, I was contacted. They wanted to do a story about, they were doing a series on interesting houses and interesting people who live in them. And <laughs> I don't know how they got my name, but some somehow they heard of me. And this <laughs> lovely editor, she was a freelance writer. She came to visit and she did a, actually a fabulous article for for the newspaper with beautiful photos you can still find it online actually if you want to want to find and, that yeah so what you want to look up because i think it still is you want to look up country house in france because that was the title of it and then you look up medzomo my married name and i think you'll still be able to link into that and you'll see you'll get an <laughs> idea of the context of those poems I'm going to do that. That's very exciting to look at. I want to see that. And 6,000 oranges. What do you do with those oranges? Well, actually, uh, we, of course, I make some some marmalade, but I don't, <laughs> I don't have an industrial production of that. So when the kids, when my children were growing up, what we did was we used to take crates of them to their school and juice them for charity. Oh, oh I love that's that. great. And then we also would um, take them to Monaco, where my husband works, and we would take bags of them and same thing. We would sell them and then give the money to charity. That's oh, terrific. That's terrific. The giving tree. And I love that you buried <laughs> your poetry under it. So it's like every orange is a piece of your poetry. I suppose so. I haven't thought of that, but that yeah. is a lovely thought. So, yeah. yes. So until I wrote this poem, actually, the orange tree was the star of my property. But now I, I see the fig tree is coming to its own, and I'm delighted. <laughs> Excellent. That's great. Well, you clearly have a deep connection with nature, because that's yes. what that's what just like came through so prominently in reading yes. these poems. And um, I was wonderful. I could just put myself there from your descriptions and the language. It's beautiful. Yeah. And, and I think that's, I, I think I was born with that in a way. And then, of course, if you grew up in Maine, I think you could ask anyone who grew up in Maine, it would be very hard not to develop that deep connection mm -hmm. um, yes. to, to nature because it's every way you turn in Maine. And we had a, a summer house down on the coast and with blueberry fields and, um, uh, just the the ledges the the rocky ocean everything about it and we were really always outside mm -hmm. immersed in that world and it was where i really felt at home almost outside more than inside that's great do you find being in europe it's a similar i mean how does that translate i guess the the nature or the outdoor experience well, I must say, I'm not a lover of palm trees, you know, <laughs> and I live in the land of palms, actually, but really, uh, yeah, the have... French, the French Riviera is, is filled with palm trees. The, I did the not whole know coast that. How uneducated of me. is lined with palm trees and uh, they've never been my favorite tree. I've, I miss a lot of the majestic pine trees that we have mm -hmm. in, 
in America and actually that we had in Rome. I, I lived in Rome for 10 years and the parks are just, are gorgeous. And they've got these majestic pine trees that are, I mean, they're just, they're breathtaking. Mm. Um, and so, I, you know, I miss a lot of the fauna and, you know, what I grew up with, the evergreens, because we don't really have too much of that here. But uh, so that took some getting used to. But on the other hand, yeah, we have fig trees <laughs> and uh, lots of other kinds of trees and vegetables. We have a, we have a fairly good sized vegetable garden that we cultivate mm. here uh, just just for ourselves, just for home use. So it's a different type of nature, but I've, it's, it's grown on me, let's say. Sure, sure. Are there a lot of vineyards nearby? Have you ever like toured a vineyard or wandered around? The yeah. Way? We have toured vineyards. They're mostly to the west of where I am because where I live is quite uh, concentrated. There's not really that much land for vineyards. Mm -hmm. What there are a lot of around me are olive groves. Mm -hmm. oh, I yes. can see that. Sure. Yeah, we have a big, we don't actually have all olive trees on my property, but we do have a few pine trees and we grow a few. I, I live in what's called the land of lemons. Montan is known uh, for their lemon festival. They have a citron festival. And people come from all over the world because they have a big park and they make, they have a theme and they make enormous sculptures with oranges and lemons. Oh, <laughs> that sounds that's, great. Sounds fantastic. <laughs> yeah, so that's uh, actually fun. Uh, I'm a big fan of lemons. Yeah. Yeah, great. Well, good. But let's get into some of these questions because... Um, we're gonna have to go. We're gonna have to go a little bit longer on the show if you have the time, because we have so I'm many good. questions. Okay, good. I know it. Well, you know, talking about being in nature and it fueling your imagination, I think that it's really interesting how, you know, your imaginative process for poetry might not be the same as your imaginative process for writing children's books. So, how can you compare and contrast writing the different styles? Uh, yeah, I'm probably actually going to disappoint you <laughs> because, <laughs> no. you know, one of the questions I get a lot, obviously, is where do your ideas come from and how do you actually do it? Yeah. And, you know, the way I've kind of learned, I have to be I consider myself almost a scribe at this point in my life. Mm -hmm. And it's more like I just feel like a lot of the time I'm downloading something. <laughs> I, I I feel like I get onto a channel and it just comes through me. Yeah. And so the process, whether it's a book for children or poetry, and I observed it when I was writing the poetry, I was able to observe it because I was aware of it. When I was younger, I used to really worry about, oh gosh, what if I never get another idea? How is this working? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then after about 10 years, I realized you will get another idea. And yeah. I began to I began to actually step outside myself and observe a little bit how it did work. And it was really so much like I would just get on some channel and I'd start receiving <laughs> inspiration and uh, and it would just start to flow. Oh, that's great. So it's really the same process for anything you're writing. Yes, I would say it's the same process, but uh, sometimes it's much more acute. And when I wrote those poems, it was, I felt like when I would stop my writing for the day, I would almost have to just take my shoes off, walk barefoot, uh, have a glass of 
whiskey, no. <laughs> bourbon. <laughs> water, water, bourbon. Get myself right back down to earth. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you can feel that in this poetry. I felt transported. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's and that's the word. When I wrote it, I also felt transported. Yeah. I mean, even you describing that, you know, I can feel the grass under your feet. You know, it's just, I love it. And, and those are sensations that I actually, uh, I mean, that many of, as again, what I describe uh, are very real. I wasn't really imagining they are what I do and what I have here where I live. Yeah. Hmm. Pieces of your life. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, on the picture book side of things, how do you work with an illustrator in, so you, the language comes down. Do you also have visions of what you want to see? How does that process work? That, I'm very curious about that too. Um, I think I'm a very visual person. So, uh, yeah, when I'm writing, I'm getting probably some vague visuals. And I do tend to have nurtured awareness of possibility because when you're writing something, especially for kids, that's going to be in a format like a picture book, you want to make sure that what you're writing about or describing or showing in your words is something that's going to translate into illustrations as well. So right. I do have an awareness of that, but I don't really, and actually uh, in the old days when I was working with Francis, very often I would have an illustrator in mind. Mm -hmm. And mostly that was because, and this is a great, a great story. Um, early in my career, when I lived in Rome, I met uh, a German artist through a mutual friend. He was painting still lifes at the time and he was exhibiting in Rome. And I fell in love with his work. I went to an exhibition, I met him, and I remember asking him, would you like to try to illustrate one of my children's books? Oh, wow. Mm. Because, because normally um, writers don't have a say in who illustrates. If you have a, okay. an, edit, an editor may show you some samples of someone's work and if you don't like it, then of course they're going to listen to what you have to say. But very often there's not a lot of involvement between, and, and there's no real contact between illustrator and writer. The editor is the, liaison, is the liaison and the art director. Okay. But what happened in this case was, um, I loved this person's work. I had a text that I'd written right after my first son was born. And he did a, some samples. And actually, we ended up doing a dummy together, a dummy of a book. He wanted mm -hmm. to do the whole book. And he wanted to show it to Gallimard in France first. And um, I said, OK, I would. And they bought it on the spot. We went up to Paris. They bought it on the spot. Wow. I had to go back to Francis and say, Gallimard has bought it on the spot. I was hoping oh. to have time to, to, to show her. Um, or maybe I had told her what I was doing and showed her. And she had talked with the editor-in-chief, who, who wasn't sure about the art. Maybe it was a little too painterly. And on and on it went. But the the the... The long, to make a long story short, I did probably over the years uh, with Georg, his name's Georg Hallensleben. Uh, we did more than 12 books together, I think. Mm. Many of our, my award-winning books, we, we won important awards for our work in Europe and in America. Oh, and um, 
We did all of our books together. I would get an idea, I'd give it to him, and we ended up just giving Francis all of the other ones I gave to Francis. Uh, we would give her the <laughs> dummy. But the part that was so fun was Georg lived in an old flour mill in Rome up on some of the seven hills. Oh, and wow. um, I would go up there uh, to, to see him and we'd sit down and sort of work together. But uh, I then became pregnant with my second child. So it was quite a hike for me. So what Georg did was he got himself a van, an old van, and he outfitted a little studio. Wow. And he that's used so to great. drive down and park in front of my house and come up and we would work and he'd go and paint and then come back up. And we did that oh, for wow. years. That is terrific. And then that what a great is the story. coolest thing. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And you... I... go ahead. I was say, does he still have that van? Does he uh, take it around anywhere and use well, it? Well, he's he's actually he ended up marrying someone from Gallimard and moved in moving to Paris. So when I moved to France, he ended up moving to Paris. So oh. we continued to work together. And one of our first books once we moved to France was The Cat Who Walked Across France, and mm. he was oh. in. He literally got in his van in Paris and drove down here and painted all along the way. He, he followed, the route, followed the route of the cat. No, that's, I have to get that book now. I know. <laughs> Absolutely. That is really special. The kids special. are a little old for picture books, but I don't care. No, <laughs> yeah. yeah. That no, but that, the paintings are gorgeous. Yes, no doubt. Ah, that sounds yeah. amazing. I love that story and how things come to be. Knowing the, the little secret histories behind books and, and the author is just so intriguing and it, it makes you feel more connected. Yeah, that's why I love the, these interviews too. You know, your work mm -hmm. becomes the work of the the author, but bec becomes so much more because you get to know the person behind the work. I, yeah. I love it. Yeah. Well, um, okay. So in some of the background materials that you sent us, you know, you have an interesting past, but also um, your jobs, I guess, as a regression therapist and a hypnotist. A hypnotist. We have got <laughs> to talk about this. I was so, very excited to talk about this. Yeah. Okay. So, well, how this actually began, and I'm going to try to go through this. It was over a period of years. When I was 42, I had a minor operation in Nice, and I had a near-death experience during that. Mm. Oh, wow. And uh, that was life-changing for me because actually I had what they call an iatrogenic error, which was a medical mistake. I don't oh, know no. what happened to the surgeon, but... In retrospect, we found out quite a few years later that he had forgotten to sew up the my peritoneum, which is part of oh my your goodness. stomach. Yeah. <laughs> what's holding you together, let's say. The lining, yeah. The yeah. lining that's holding everything in. So my organs kind of all slipped back into my presacral fossa. And about, uh, oh I was goodness. in excruciating pain, and we couldn't really get to the bottom of it. And three years later, I, I had a massive infection. And... Um, by that time, sort of, we'd figured out something is not right here. And, you know, I didn't go back to that doctor. It was clear that something was very wrong there. But mm -hmm. the interesting part of this whole experience was I remembered very distinctly this past life, you know, kind of this experience of, of leaving and being greeted by this woman in white. Mm. Really? And I didn't have, I didn't see the tunnel, but I was in a space and I was very, very tiny and she was huge. And I remember her saying to me at some point, you, you need to stop, you need to go back. And I didn't want to go back. I wanted to come with her. 
And she said, no, no, she said, no, you have to go back. And I started to cry and she came and she put her arm around me and I felt something. Uh, she had something around her neck, and oh, then this next gives thing, me I, chills. I know I, I have chills too. <laughs> I was back in the I was back in the recovery room, and um, it was a very tough few years after because I was left with a, a lot of damage to my sacral roots, mm. and there's no real medicine for that. Uh, right. Painkillers don't get there, so I started to really explore the world of my my surgeon I had to have six surgeries and I had to go up to Normandy every time Mm. because it was the only surgeon that could do something as difficult as this Mm -hmm. and really he I'd had some pieces of gauze and stuff left in me as well so it was it was horrifying Mm. what happened but you know I try I I tend to be pretty much Okay, it's easy now to say, but I remember those years just thinking, I got to get out of this. I'm not going to live like this. Yeah. this is not, yeah. I'm not going to do this. And um, I started looking at alternative ways. I, I, I had done, my kids were born with acupuncture, so I, I knew a lot about acupuncture. Hmm. And I did some of that. And I started to explore hands-on healing and Reiki and quantum touch and different kinds of work that maybe I could do on myself to help myself so that I could walk actually for three years. I couldn't really walk almost. Hmm. Wow. wow. that's. I was very, I was crippled really for about oh, three years. Hmm. And, but I would do work on myself every day. And I started, once I felt that things were getting better, I started to get curious about how this is working. How yeah. is this hands on? How's this all working that, you know, I can touch People And there were a whole series of synchronicities where I had a woman to come, a housekeeper come work for me. And she took me aside one day and said, one day you're going to be able to be, you're going to be a healer and you're going to be able to see into people's bodies. And, you know, I was just sort of laughing and saying, what is she talking about? But everything she predicted actually came to pass. And over the years, I studied almost every type of hands-on healing that existed and body talk and quantum touch and quantum techniques and um, a lot of different healing modalities where you're working with energy mm-hmm. and I had a very I had a very well-developed sense of it and I remember putting two and two together one day and thinking ah yes all this information is the same channel that I get my writing from oh wow this but is it was it was almost like I had a whole new bandwidth yeah that I could plug into and anyway, I remember when I wasn't, I had no plans to actually start working on people, but then I had friends ask, so I started to, <laughs> to you know, it just kind of happened. And I remembered working one day on a, a girl and suddenly seeing her in a whole different life and thinking, wow, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was related to some of what her issues were. And then I became very, I think the turning point was, there was a, a race car driver in Monaco who was in a very serious accident. He was in a coma in Italy for uh, a number of weeks. And one of his relatives called and asked me if I could do something for him. And of course, I thought, well, no, I, I, I don't know. But I, I felt really on the spot there. I said, I sure. can try, but no promises. Wow. Mm-hmm. And there weren't, wasn't much hope, actually, of him coming out of this coma. But I worked on him. I woke up in the middle of the night. I remember one night thinking, oh, you do need to do something. You need to just try. And I tried. And for two nights, I woke up and I worked on him. And he actually came out of his coma. 
And when he came, when he came back to Monaco, I met him and he would come and see me and I would work on him and I would see lots of things about him that there was no way of me knowing that. And that's where I became interested in regression and hypnosis and what is this world that one enters. And I went to England and over the course of a couple of years, I I became um, a past life a therapist and it wasn't I was I have to say I, I was a natural I could just move between the two worlds so easily and obviously it was because I'd had that experience so everything came together and I could only at that point accept that oh hmm obviously I should be doing this work because I'm I'm alive and I am right. so grateful yeah. to actually be alive that's, that's terrific amazing. that is yeah. amazing and so I did become a therapist. I did become a therapist. And, you know, I said, I'm doing this because I need to. I felt that the, that it was a mission in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is so interesting Now and, and impactful. I mean, it sounds like it's something that really uh, makes a difference in others' lives. Yeah. And, you know, I just felt like, well, you can't, you can't not do this after everything you've been through. I mean, right. it, it wasn't even on the table it was just something i did and yes your your path was kind of carved for you in that regard it's exactly in the same way it was with the children's books i mean yeah. the doors just opened and um please enter wow. <laughs> and yes. i did so as graciously as i could that's oh, terrific amazing. well so does your experience um having gone through that and now that you um, are able to do those things has that changed the way you write or what you write about at all? Has it affected that aspect of your life? I've had so many people actually ask, sort of say to me, why don't you write about that or write about your yeah. life? It's so interesting. And, you know, I never, I don't think of my life as so interesting in that way. Uh, it definitely um, is. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, or, and, you know, I was always very hesitant to write about it. But what's hmm. kind of, I didn't really know how I wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, I kind of just put it on hold for a while. But but what's really interesting is when I was writing these poems, I kind of realized maybe this is how I want to write about that. Mm. Yeah. And I started a, a new collection actually called Into the Ether, where they just come to me. Yeah. yeah. And where I'll be able to talk about my experience between two worlds. Through poetry. Yeah. That's terrific. That's lovely. So yes. that's that's my, you know, that's a preview of coming attractions, let's say. I love that preview. And I that's have good. to ask, I know we're like way over time, but the, in the serious side of things, there's the kind of the fun side of things. So being a hypnotist, you often see that as, you know, people do that for fun to show, you know, did anybody in the audience want to be hypnotized? Do you right. do that for friends? Uh, well, no. That for I fun? D- uh <laughs> No, well, I don't do that, but what I do do that's actually super fun sometimes, and I will do it for friends if they want to, when we have a group either to dinner or some such thing, there's a little thing we can do called Around the World, and it's where you take your guests into a, a light trance, and they start to travel. You take them kind of around the world, and you take them into a past life. Fascinating. <laughs> really? Suddenly, they will look down at the world, which is very small below you, and they'll suddenly be attracted to maybe a, a place. I remember when I was wow. in my training, and when it happened to me, I was suddenly taken right to central London. 
<laughs> and a, a whole life unraveled there. And that's, it's just a fun little thing to do. And, and of course, our, our, it's important, I think, to know that in our work as regression therapists, you know, we don't really have a position about whether you actually had that life or not. You know, we don't have the knowledge to know. Uh, it's not like we think that we've all had past lives, but we know that whatever story someone pulls up, they're identifying with something in the subconscious mind. So whether it's an archetypical story or a story that happened to one of their relatives or someone else, it doesn't matter. But we mm -hmm. use that story to work through usually uh, an issue or a problem or some something they're struggling with. But the go around the world is just a great little thing because people are just astonished at what they see. That yes. is so fascinating. It well, is. I am super excited about this edition this year because one of our stories is called The Light Body and it's written by Tiffany Wojnowski. But um, it's oh, also... I'm excited about that. I, yeah, it's yeah. a really interesting story. And she um, writes about a basically a Roma uh, energy healer and it is fiction from her perspective, but it's about all of the sort of the baggage that uh, people carry. And it's she she describes this as she sees all of the people and all. It's like a blanket that they carry behind them, and there are people yeah. standing there like a mother holding something or a doll or a dog or whatever. And she dusts them off and she sort of lightens the load by ha oh, interacting. That's it's fascinating, yeah. And I mean, it seriously, is. it's it, almost. I very along the lines of uh, what you're talking about, in a way. I was thinking the same thing. Well, yeah, I, I, can, re I can relate very much to what you've just said, because it's very much like that when you are matriculating in that world. Mm -hmm. You yes. do get a very clear sense of our pasts and how we how we carry them and actually what they are. Right, yeah. right. And that's exactly what she was describing. And her stories stemmed from a nonfiction source right. you know mm -hmm. it, she it yeah. was somebody in real life and she you know it's part nonfiction, part fiction melding those together so fascinating yeah. definitely reminds <laughs> me of this too you know it's a, it's an overlap and so fascinating i know it's like another something that most of us never tap into you know so it's it's fascinating because we can't really relate but we want to know more Definitely. Yeah, and, and i think most people can actually tap into that world because it I, i'm i'm com completely convinced at this point that it is part of all of us and we just need sometimes to have a roadmap mm -hmm. but it's where as you can see when i when we started i was talking about my outer journey but you know i would say in the last 20 years most of my journey has been inward mm. and yeah. in exploration of this world and and how it works that's terrific well i encourage you to write about it <laughs> i think it'd yes. be fascinating to learn more and to see yes. what you come up with. and i was first thinking memoir but then as you describe it in poetry i think that would be beautiful yeah either yeah. way wonderful, wonderful just has to get out there though right jw it has i agree 100 percent. i think it will i i i'm i'm there okay good hard good. at work <laughs> oh terrific <laughs> All right. Well, we definitely have gone a little bit over on time, but um, actually one of the bonuses with poetry is that reads a lot faster than a 5,000 yes. word story. So in reality, our show is usually around an hour and this will be fine, I'm sure. Well, and I, I, I think that's another great thing about poetry. These days, people are very busy. Mm -hmm. Yes. And it's, it's the perfect thing to dip into a poem. Wouldn't you agree? Yes. 100%. Yep. I have heard recently more and more authors talking about how they read poetry for inspiration and the beauty of language. And exactly. so it's it's a great tool. And so I think more and more people are going to be reading poetry. Good. Yeah, I agree with you there. And I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> Your poetry too. <laughs> oh, yours okay. is lovely. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. Well, so we are 
I guess we're coming up on time here. Um, yeah. Melissa, do you want to ask the last question that we always ask all of our show? We may have to change this in the future, but right now it's the same. It's the question we ask everybody at the end. I, I think it's a great <laughs> sign off because it's, you know, it lets everyone know we're at the end, but it's also leaves you with a little jewel. Um, <laughs> so like JW said, we ask everyone and you are a published author do you have any writing advice for aspiring writers or those readers that are interested to know for somebody who might want to pursue becoming published or just writing in general? Resources, anything, or aspiring poets, whatever, however you want to take us out. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think the one thing um, I, I remember sort of chuckling when, when I'm asked the question, do you know something now that you didn't know then? And exactly. I think the reality is, I'm glad I didn't know what I know now because I may not have done what I did. Interesting. Uh, this that is, is interesting. This, this, to me, it's a situation where, okay, today there are so many resources out there. But back when I started out, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have mm -hmm. resources. We didn't know um, who, I mean, we were sending manuscripts to slush piles, basically. Right. Yeah. That's how it was done or getting an agent. But I think what that really meant was you weren't listening to a lot of different voices yes. coming from the outside because what i think there's a real risk there that you lose your voice or your your let's call it your tribe or your group of voices which yeah. you know maybe your audience or the voice that you want to speak through because i'm convinced that it's not just one voice but the the notion of voice uh mm -hmm what you want to say, how you want to say it. It's so important to always have that somewhere in the background. Mm -hmm. yeah. Because once you lose voice, then you lose a lot of what you have to say. And it's so easy to be influenced by other voices. And it's, yeah. there's a huge difference between being influenced and inspired, because obviously I've been inspired by many voices. Sure. Um, in, in the world of writing, but even in the real world. But it's really to sort of um, be able to distill that into your voice. Hmm. Yes. Because that's really, even though we're putting words on paper, what's behind that is a voice. Hmm. Yes. And, and, you know, there's a type of authenticity, whether you're writing fiction or nonfiction, that comes from voice. And just what that is. So I think it's something, you know, to be careful to, if you really feel you have something to say or a way you want to say it, or uh, don't be discouraged by the other voices out there in the world. I great. think that's great. There's so much out there that can dampen, dampen your imagination and exactly and silence you. Yes. And, and this is, I think we just to, to maybe have an awareness of that. Yes. I think it's probably the most important thing I can I can offer up from my own experience. Well, that's terrific. Well, Kate, thank you so much for submitting your beautiful poetry and spending yes. time with us to talk about your background and so many interesting topics. It's been great to have you on the show. So and it's, fun. It's been wonderful, too. And I feel like we've just bridged the pond there in the middle of us. I know, <laughs> exactly. I know. Yes. So, uh, yeah. So thank you both so much. It's been been delightful for me as well. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Good. Okay. Have a nice day. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. If so, 
please help us spread the word by telling your friends or giving us a rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Those reviews really make a difference. We'd like to thank the folks at Literature and Latte, the makers of Scrivener, for sponsoring the podcast and providing an amazing tool for writers. If you'd like to take your writing to the next level and use a tool designed for writers by writers, then give Scrivener a try. What have you got to lose? The Story Discovery Podcast is a free, narrated podcast of the works that appear in Etched Onyx Magazine. Edited by J.W. McAteer, all stories and poems are available for free at onyxpublications.com. That's O-N-Y-X publications.com. If you'd like to support the continuation of this podcast and or the magazine, please consider a small donation through Patreon at patreon.com slash onyxpublications. As a nano publishing house, we are always looking for new works to showcase. If you'd like to submit a story or poem for consideration, please visit the submissions page on our website. In the meantime, keep reading and writing.